basically a few years ago, we had a call from this little lady who lived in a house a few blocks away. She was moving out of the house and she called us and said, oh, I found these, you know, vintage letters in my attic. Do you want them? And our archivist was like, yes, please. And he went and he picked up these letters. The lady didn't know anything about them. They had been there in the house since before she was there. And as we were going through the letters, it turned out that they were from 1919 to 1921 and that there were 306 love letters. And the love letters were written to the gentleman who used to live in that house, Charles Benjamin Hill. His family lived there for a number of years. Only Charles, uh, during this time, he had just gotten back from World War I. He was settling back in his family home in Lake Oswego, and he became essentially a traveling businessman. And everywhere he traveled, he picked up a new girlfriend. And so the love letters are from six ladies consistently and then a few more scattered throughout that are writing to him these deep, passionate love letters that he was responding to often at the same time. He had a like filing system to keep track of who he responded to and who needed responses. And they are so funny and charming. Join us as Executive Director Ms. Catherine Siner delves into the fascinating tale of 306 provocative love letters penned by women to the charismatic salesman Charles B. Hill between 1919 and 1921 in Oswego, Oregon. Uncover more intriguing details in this episode, and for an immersive experience, Visit the Oswego Heritage Council's website at www.oswegoheritage.org to secure your copy of these historical letters. Immerse yourself in the captivating narratives of a bygone era, its history, at its most compelling. Now let's continue with the program. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Thanks for being here. We have a great program for you today. In this episode, we embark on a journey to explore one of the most enchanting and tranquil regions of our wonderful country, Lake Oswego, Oregon. 
Lake Oswego sits nestled among the tall trees of Oregon as a hospitable community renowned for its exceptional shopping and dining experiences, along with its top-tier school system. The city boasts an abundance of stylish shops, excellent restaurants, and charming boutiques. Situated around a 405-acre lake, Lake Oswego has some of the most serene views and desirable residential areas in the Portland metropolitan area. And at the very heart of Lake Oswego lies the Oswego Heritage Council's Heritage House and Museum. In this episode, we have the privilege of meeting Ms. Catherine Siner, the Executive Director of the Oswego Heritage Council. By the episode's conclusion, my hope is that you will find yourself compelled to join their mission of preserving and promoting the rich history and culture of Lake Oswego. I'm Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and I'm coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature information about museums, cultural and heritage institutions, associations, historical and genealogical societies, and history-focused media creators across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but you can find us on nearly all podcast platforms, as well as Rumble, Getter, Minds, TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program or if you have questions or comments about the program, just spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we meet with the president of the Michigan chapter of the American Rosie the Riveter Association. The purpose of the Michigan Willow Run chapter of the American Rosie the Riveter Association is to provide fellowship opportunities and social activities for their local World War II Rosie the Riveters, who stepped up to do a man's job during World War II, and in the process proved to themselves and our nation that we can do it. They also seek to provide opportunities for people of all generations to meet, greet, honor, and learn from these very special ladies and their friends, the World War II veterans who have so much to teach and inspire all of us. I'm so inspired by the work Jeanette and her team are doing, and I can't wait to dig into my time with Jeanette and learn about this wonderful association. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historical January events for this episode. On January 3rd, it's National Drinking Straw Day. The drinking straw was first patented on January 3rd, 1888. Also on January 3rd, 1959, Alaska was admitted as a state. On January 4th, Sir Isaac Newton was born in 1643. One of this scientist's biggest contributions to the field was Newton's Laws of Motion. January 5th is National Bird Day. Learn about the birds in your area. It's good of you all to feed the birds, especially in the wintertime, to help them get through. On January 6, 1912, New Mexico became a state. It's also the date that George Washington and his wife Martha were married in 1759. On January 7, 1789, the first United States presidential election was held. 
George Washington was elected the first president of the United States. His opponent, John Adams, became his vice president. On January 9th, we have two quirky holidays, National Static Electricity Day and National Apricot Day. On January 10th, it's Volunteer Fireman's Day. Time to break out the chili and have a fabulous potluck for your community's volunteer firemen and women. On January 12th, the first x-rays were taken in the United States in 1896. On January 14th, you can celebrate Bald Eagle Day or national holidays like Hot Pastrami Sandwich Day and Dress Up Your Pet Day. On January 15th, of course, is Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. He was born on January 15th, 1929. His birthday became a federal holiday on November 3rd, 1983. It's celebrated every year on the third Monday in January. The date is also National Hat Day and National Strawberry Ice Cream Day. On January 16th, John C. Fremont was appointed Governor of California in 1847. In 1870, on January 16th, Virginia became the first state readmitted to the Union after the Civil War. And finally, on January 19th, it's National Popcorn Day and Archery Day. It's also the day that Edgar Allan Poe was born in 1809. Thank you to www.thoughtco.com for this episode's historic information. And now we'll provide a short biography of our guest, Catherine Siner. Catherine has a passion for getting people excited about their community's history. She's been involved in museum work for a decade, spending time in science centers and history museums across both Oregon and Arizona. She has a master's degree in history and is most interested in helping people develop the critical thinking skills necessary to understand today's world through the lens of the past and using that knowledge to propel us to a better, more equitable future. All right. Welcome to the program, Catherine. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You are most welcome. Wow, the Oswego Heritage House and Museum is really beautiful and situated in a great location. I'm really impressed by its beauty. Sure is a beautiful area of the country. Yes, it is very beautiful. <laughs> Do you get snow in your area in the winter? Uh, yes, it tends to snow about once or twice a year. It's been very fun because I have grown up in places where it does not snow. And so last year when I came to the house in winter... It was covered in snow one day, and it was just, it was like a magical little fairyland. So, yeah, we do. Speaking of magical fairyland, did I just hear Santa's bells? <laughs> yeah, sorry, somebody was opening and closing the doors. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, Santa, he's here. <laughs> <laughs> just had to add to the ambiance. <laughs> no kidding. You're in the Willamette Valley, right? Yes, yeah, we are. So you've got all the wineries around you, all the wonderful places, all the growing of hops and all of those things in that valley. Yes. Yeah. We're just south-ish of Portland. And so we're in the beautiful Willamette Valley and you can't go a few blocks without stumbling over a winery. Fantastic. What are the must-see tourist spots in the area? Uh, here in Lake Oswego, obviously it's in the name. You got to come see the lake. It's very beautiful. There's a lot of historic houses that people like traveling to to see. Um, we have a, a beautiful theater as well, Lakewood Theater for the Arts. 
um, and as well as uh, a lot of art galleries. Um, in terms of this area, when I get somebody out of town coming to visit, I like taking them to the natural beauty around here. So we all go up to Mount Hood, go up to some little some little rivers, just to kind of take in the Pacific Northwest. And then of course, if you're in the area and you've never been before, you got to go to Powell's. That's the that's the big thing in Portland, the giant bookstore. So oh, okay. those are kind of the big ones. Now you have waterfalls in your area too, right? Yes. Yeah, many. Yeah, Willamette Falls is a really, really famous one. Yeah, there's a lot of gorgeous falls in the area. Oh, very cool. Now, this lake that you're on, Lake Oswego, it's 405 acres. What's the mm -hmm. history of the lake? Yeah, great question. Good place to start. <laughs> the lake has been here for a while. The, one of the most interesting things that I've run across with guests coming in that want to learn more about the history is that they have the perception that the lake is man-made, which it is very much not man-made. It's been changed by people, but it's been around for a long time. There's evidence of habitation in the area for thousands and thousands of years. Some of the oldest archaeological sites in Oregon are actually in Lake Oswego. The lake was kind of in between two major territories. And then once you get to like European settlement coming in and that sort of era. Albert Durham is the one who named Oswego Oswego. He came here in the 1840s, 1850s, and he built a sawmill nearby, named it Oswego, named the lake Sucker Lake. And then the town kind of built up from there. There was a lot of farming. The iron industry was kind of the big thing. And then once the iron industry collapsed, that's where you get the shift to, to more, let's celebrate the lake, like let's build a culture around the lake. Let's do a lot of like recreational activities. And that's when you also get the name change of the town to Lake Oswego. And then you also get the change of the lake itself from Sucker Lake to Oswego Lake to eventually Lake Oswego as well. So. The lake itself went through a lot of changes during that time period, especially with the iron industry. But the lake's been here for a long time, and it's gone through a lot of name changes. <laughs> so was Albert like a like one of those salesmen, a slick salesman? Is that why he named it Sucker Lake? <laughs> I no, it was uh, because of the there's like lamprey eels in the oh, lake, oh. Um, and they have like a little sucker mouth. And so it was named after those. Before that, it was named Waluga, which was the indigenous word for swan. Oh, okay. Yeah, Sucker Lake's so not a real enticing name, huh? Yeah, that's why they changed it. Once they realized, okay, we're not going to be an industry town. We're going to be kind of a recreational town. We need a rebrand. And so <laughs> it went from Sucker Lake to Oswego Lake. Oh, cool, cool. That's a beautiful lake. Anybody listening mm -hmm. out there, you, you should go to your map app and just take a look at Lake Oswego. It's just gorgeous, just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Now, Catherine, are there any specific challenges or opportunities unique to preserving heritage in Lake Oswego? Yeah, I think that one of the, the best opportunities that I found is that Coming into this museum, I've been here for a year now, and I've just been absolutely stunned by how 
supportive the community is and how much they care about preserving the history and heritage and sharing that and educating people about that. There's been so much support and so much excitement that I haven't seen in a lot of other communities, not that other communities don't care about their history, but this community in particular wants to be involved in that process and like wants to support us however they can. So that's been really exciting and presents a lot of unique opportunities for partnerships, for programs, for new exhibits and collections and all of that good stuff that, you know, we would have had to take longer to build otherwise. And then in terms of of challenges, I think um, it it might sound a a little contradictory, but I think that it's interesting that a lot of people move here temporarily. So we have a lot of people that will move here with their, you know, young families to get into like the school system and they'll engage with the community for a short period of time and then eventually they'll move away. And so there's like a lot of excitement in general for, you know, education, for engaging in the arts and culture of the area. And then there's also this weird thing where a lot of people are still disconnected from how does this history impact me and how how can I relate to this history? And so that's been interesting to just step into because it's like both of these things are true and they're a little contradictory at the same time. But yeah. So what are some of the lesser known facts or stories about Lake Oswego's history that the museum helped to uncover? Good question. I think that there are a lot. <laughs> I think that when you talk about local history in particular, you're talking about very personal stories. And so there are, you know, these kind of big stories of Lake Oswego's history, like the iron industry and the growing town in like the early 1900s and shifting away from iron. And those those big histories, there's always new stuff to d- discover within them. But there's also the really, really personal stories that are contained within letters and diaries and photographs um, that we deal with a lot. And so I'd say a lot of the the research that we do are these lesser known facts or stories about Lake Oswego's history because they're, you know, a story about a person, a story about a family, a story about a group of people who were doing something or you know, things like that. So, I mean, just a few examples. We do a lot of, like I said, we have a lot of documents and photos and diaries and all that stuff. And so we did like research into this pair of twins who lived here in the 1890s, Cora and Clara Wilmot. They lived here their whole life, but in the 1890s, they kept a diary together. And every day they swapped off who wrote in the diary And it's a lot of like small town drama and farming gossip and, you know, things like that. But within those stories, you can start pulling out details about what life was like for some of these women in early Oswego and their relationship to each other and the town and all of these other little stories hidden within it about in that diary, they referenced some Chinese laborers that were living in Lake Oswego at the time. And then you can start learning about their stories. And so I think with local history, with a lot of history in particular, the more you research, the more of these lesser known stories you pull out. 
And then you can just keep digging and keep digging and find more and more. And so I think that that's kind of most of what we do. Yeah, that's cool. I, I've got this picture in my mind. Tell me if it's true. You've got like a basement or an attic and it's filled with artifacts that have been donated to the organization. And, you know, there's a dark corner somewhere and it's just <laughs> chock full of stuff. And you're slowly picking your way through these artifacts and each one, you know, takes weeks or months to research. And, you know, you're constantly astounded by what you're finding along this journey through this, this you know, ton of artifacts. Is that how it goes or am I just dreaming? Yeah, I think that you, you're pretty much on top of it. So our museum is a house. It looks like a house inside is a lot like a house. But we have as kind of a remnant from when the house wasn't a house and it was a real estate office, in the basement we have a vault. And in that basement, in that vault, is where we keep the majority of our collections. It is well lit and well organized so that is the correction that i will okay, make there um, but we our research team will pull something out like within a collection so we'll have like a collection of a bunch of miscellaneous things that was donated to us whether it's like a bunch of letters or you know a bunch of paperwork that is everything and then they'll start kind of going through that, researching the people involved, researching the places involved, and kind of starting to piece together a narrative that is built from that collection. So yeah, you're, you're pretty accurate there. What a life it would be to be that conservator or that curator or that archivist or mm -hmm. that, that volunteer that's doing yeah. that every day and just fascinating. Every single day is different, you know? Wow. Absolutely. Yeah, we're really lucky with the team that we have. Our archivist is a volunteer. Um, he's here pretty much full time. I swear he's here more than I am. Um, and he uh, works with about five other volunteers consistently to put this stuff together. So it's always fun to hear about what they've uncovered and to, you know, dig myself through as well and, and pull out some wow. interesting stuff. Now, how do you record that? Once you learn about it, right? So you learn mm -hmm. the story and you're like all inspired and you're all like, oh man, this is so cool. How, how do you then record it? Do you put that in past perfect or something? That is a great question. So I think that that's kind of the big question of our organization is that our team has done a lot of really great research. Um, they've recorded it in different methods. We don't use past perfect here, but they'll either like write a little essay on it, like, or we'll have these published books that we do that we share with like the library and a few other organizations around town. Or we'll use it in like exhibits. But a, a lot of that isn't as accessible as it could be, isn't as necessarily engaging as it could be. And so the thing that I've been focused on this past year is using the stuff that we, the research that we have, these amazing stories, and finding new ways to share them and yeah. to engage people in that history. And so, you know, that can be like a program or outreach or you know, an online exhibit or a bunch of other stuff that's in the Vibe Works. But I think that that's kind of the 
the big question is you do this great research, you have these great stories, how can you share them? Yeah, that's got to be a big challenge for you. I wish you luck with that. I hope you I hope you can crack that nut successfully. Yeah, I think I mean there's not one answer to it and it'll be a question without one answer that goes on forever. So I enjoy things like that. I find I take a lot of pleasure in figuring out how to trick people into learning. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's the history of the Lake Oswego Heritage Council? Yeah, we have been around for a while. I know that it started with people in the community that cared a lot about history and wanted to preserve the stories of people who were passing away, wanted to preserve the architectural uniqueness to the area, wanted to do a lot of like preservation work. And that's kind of shifted through the years, but we've been at this location since the late 90s. And we kind of built from there. So while the Oswego Heritage Council has kind of existed in this kind of abstract sense for longer, we've been officially an organization here since about 99. And like I said, this used to be a house. And then before that, it was a real estate office. This is a, this is a historic house. And so we've been operating out of here as a museum since then. Yeah, so the council is really all three, the Heritage House, the museum, and the council is the umbrella organization. Yeah, yeah, we're all the same thing. The names are kind of interchangeable for people. Right, okay, got it. Now, I was reading on your website that you have a really large and beautiful rose garden that people can tour, you know, when they're blooming and so on. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so our... House is situated kind of on the corner of these two main streets uh, near downtown Lake Oswego. And in 2010, this rose garden was put together to highlight historic roses. It was built to commemorate the doctor who uh, the house belonged to. He had a kind of a well-known garden that became way overgrown. And then we came in and, you know, set up the museum here and then had to redo a lot of things. And so the Rose Garden was kind of born from that. And we have, oh goodness, I couldn't tell you how many roses in our, in our garden, but they're absolutely beautiful. We have a guide on our website so that you can kind of see some of the different varieties. Sometimes we'll do like little mini tours as well with some people who know a lot more about roses than I do. <laughs> uh, but we are, again, really lucky in that we're supported uh, in terms of taking care of the garden by the, the Lake Grove Garden Club. They come in and they do a lot of work on the gardens and really keep it, keep it beautiful. But it's completely open. So anybody can just come through, take a stroll through our garden. There's benches out there. It's very lovely to sit in, especially in the, the fall and the spring. Yeah, it's just a it's a, a nice little area and it gives us some some peace and quiet in the in the house. <laughs> I bet it's beautiful in that when it's blooming. I guess they would bloom in this all through the spring and summer, right? Yeah, it it depends. Uh the majority of them seem to be in bloom in late summer, early fall. Oh, okay. Okay. Beautiful, I bet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the I like the 
spot on your website where they tell all the varieties and have beautiful pictures of them and that kind of thing. Anybody into roses is going to love that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'd like to provide listeners with the contact information for the Oswego Heritage Council. You can reach them at their website at oswegoheritage.org. You can look for them on Facebook at Oswego Heritage. You can phone them at 503-635-6373. You can visit them at 398 10th Street, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97034. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 1041, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97034. You can email them at director at oswegoheritage.org. And they're open Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Is there an admission fee to get in? Nope, our museum is free to the public. Right. Okay, but you'll take donations. Absolutely. Fantastic. Now, can you kindly share with the audience an overview of the communities you serve, the demographic makeup of your membership, and the mission and objectives of the council? Absolutely, yeah. Our mission is to preserve and promote the history and culture of Lake Oswego. We tend to work with a lot of people within Lake Oswego, of course, but the history that we tell and the stories that we research kind of echo out through Clackamas County and through the wider Pacific Northwest. So learning about our history is also learning about a broader history, too, but we have a very clear lens of, of Lake Oswego. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, Catherine, you're eminently qualified. You've got a master's degree in history. And mm -hmm. according to your bio, which we read to the audience when we did the introduction, you've uh, bounced around a little in Arizona and Oregon. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your background, how you came to do what you do now? I'm really interested in your work in Arizona because I came from Arizona before I came to Utah. Oh, really? Where in Arizona? I was in Phoenix. Oh, great. Yeah, I was in Phoenix for a bit, too. No, I wasn't in Arizona for very long, but my dad was actually, is actually a history teacher, and so I've been interested in history for as long as I can remember. Oh, cool. Uh, I like to say that the shows I watched growing up were like all of the shows on the History Channel when they actually did history documentaries and not just like, you know, all the stuff it does today. But I, I fell in love with history and have been in love with history ever since. I can remember countless conversations at dinner with my dad of just like talking about different history stuff. Uh, but when I went to college, it was for something completely different. And that was in Arizona in Tucson. And then I ended up working at the Mineral Museum and Planetarium on campus there. And I realized that that's what I love to do is I loved talking to people about history and science and culture and just getting them excited to learn and finding out new ways to just engage people. It was just like an eye-opening, oh, I love doing this, but I didn't ever think that it was something that I could do long-term for a job job. Uh, and then I ended up working in Phoenix at the Arizona Science Center there for about a year and just grew my informal education skills and worked with a lot of great people there. And then I moved to Oregon 
And then I finished my degree in in anthropology and and in history. And I was working at different museums at the time, a house museum, a science museum, places like that, and realized, yes, this is what I love. This is what I want to do. And so I've been doing it ever since. I've worked in like the collections of museums and then a lot of education of museums. And then this is my first executive director role. And I hope to be here for a very long time. I think that the Oswego Heritage Council has been one of my favorite positions that I've worked at, although every place that I've worked at has had really incredible artifacts, collections, and people present there. So I've, I, I think that I've been very lucky in doing a thing that a lot of people think that they would love and, and don't often get the chance to. Well, we're very lucky to have you here, and we're very grateful that you're here. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So what's coming up on the horizon for the council, the Heritage House, the museum? I am very excited. Now that I've been here a year, I feel like I have my feet under me. And we're starting the process of strategic plans so that we can have a three to five year vision of what direction we want to go in. But I know that that direction will include a lot more education, a lot more community engagement and just going out to people, meeting them where they're at, engaging them in the museum at different levels, and then more research and new exhibits and all of that good stuff. So I am really excited because we're in a really good place at the museum and we're participating in a lot of really exciting programs so that we can continue to build the museum and be successful for generations to come. So we're in a great spot and we're looking towards the future right now. I really like those words you said, meet them where they're at. So mm-hmm. if they go to the courthouse every day, then the museum needs to be and have an exhibit at the courthouse, you know? Yes. Yeah. That kind yeah, of thing. I was just looking at our, I was putting together, you know, our annual report on how did we do in 2023? How many people did we engage with? And, you know, only a small percentage of the people that we're serving are coming into the museum. Most of them, we're going out into the community and meeting them in other places. And so, you know, if we just wait inside our building and wait for people to come to us, we'll never be able to reach all the people that we want to reach. Yeah. They'll come if you, if you're out there and they know how to get, you know, Mm -hmm. they they will come, but you got to be out there and talk to them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, are there any upcoming exhibitions or events that the community should look forward to? Yeah. So we have a relatively new exhibit up. It opened in late October, early November. That is, it's a little bit grim. It's about death through the eyes of early Oswego families and how the community dealt with death and came together around death. And so that'll be up for a few more months. And then we'll have two uh, new exhibits next year. So we can look forward to those. Uh, The titles will be forthcoming. Okay. But in terms of events, we do a lot of historic lecture series. So we have a monthly historic presentation called Chautauqua. So that's always something to look forward to. We have some great topics coming up from the history of magic some archive stories from our own collections. So definitely want to participate in that. 
Yeah, I really like that Chautauqua series. I think that's really cool. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. We've had some really amazing speakers through the years. I'm I'm very impressed with the people that come in and talk about this stuff. It's always so fascinating. Cool. Can you tell us a couple of funny or interesting stories from your museum's history? Yes, yeah. I can tell you so many. I think that the two that I tend to tell the most, the first one is basically a few years ago, we had a call from this little lady who lived in a house a few blocks away. She was moving out of the house and she called us and said, oh, I found these, you know, vintage letters in my attic. Do you want them? And our archivist was like, yes, please. And he went and he picked up these letters. The lady didn't know anything about them. They had been there in the house since before she was there. And as we were going through the letters, it turned out that they were from 1919 to 1921 and that they were 306 love letters. And the love letters were written to the gentleman who used to live in that house, Charles Benjamin Hill. His family lived there for a number of years. Only Charles, uh, during this time, he had just gotten back from World War I. He was settling back in his family home in Lake Oswego. And he became essentially a traveling businessman. And everywhere he traveled, he picked up a new girlfriend. And so the love letters are from six ladies consistently and then a few more scattered throughout that are writing to him these deep, passionate love letters that he was responding to often at the same time. He had a like filing system to keep track of who he responded to and who needed responses. And they are so funny and charming. And these ladies are from all different walks of life. They are from all over the Pacific Northwest. One was in Virginia. Their ages were kind of 17 to 30 years old. So you have a wide range. And you get this really deeply personal look into their lives, the lives of the people around them, the things that they were doing. Some of them were, you know, working in hotels as just kind of a like a maid. Some of them were, one of them was like a school teacher in the middle of nowhere, Oregon. One of them was going to school. So you have all of these different kinds of ladies. And because the love letters are to Charles, the only voices that we're getting are the women. And so it's this really amazing look at courting and dating and messy relationships in the early 1900s. And it's it's so fun. It's truly so fun. The 17-year-old is like writing as only a 17-year-old girl in love could write. Yeah. It's very like, if I don't hear from you, I'll die oh, sort of goodness. stuff. Um, it's, it's so fun. I love it a lot. I wonder if we could track down the families and if they have any of the letters that he wrote to them. Yeah, so we, our team did a big research project into the letters and they put together this amazing manuscript that has like, who are they talking about? What are they talking about? You know, who are these people? And has a lot of photos added. And I know that they've managed to track down a few of the descendants. For example, the 17-year-old the girl, her name was Lois. They managed to track down her descendants. 
And they had no idea that, you know, their great grandma was getting up to the shenanigans. And we were hoping that they had photos of her, but they did not. And so it's kind of a a hit or miss with with tracking down the people. That might be embarrassing for them too, huh? (laughs) <laughs> I, they they were delighted. They were they were really delighted oh, by that's it. Good, um, that's good. Because it's it, there's nothing you know too scandalous in it. It's mostly just it's very fun. I mean, I would love to see a letter from my grandma or great grandma from when she was 17 and thought that she was going to marry this guy uh, that she briefly met. So that's it's amazing. it's good. <laughs> and did you say your your society wrote a book? Yeah, they they put together a manuscript that has transcriptions of all of the letters along with all of the research done. Currently, it's just available at our museum and the public library in town. But we are going to be using all of that research in some other ways coming up. So um, we'll have a story map on our website so you can see where all of these women were writing from and read a few of their letters to learn a little bit more about them. And then we'll use it in some upcoming exhibit stuff. But if someone's listening and they want to get transcriptions of all of the letters and that kind of thing, are you saying it's available in a book if they call the museum? Yes. Oh, fantastic. And, and what do they ask for? They can just ask to see the letters and we'll, we'll happily share. Okay, fantastic. So if even if I'm in another state, if I call your your organization and I say I'd like to I'd like to buy the book, you know, I'd like to see the letters, you'd have that available. Yeah, so we can have we can share a PDF of the book essentially and it's available for free, so anyone's welcome to see it. Fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. Mhm. Wow. That is just wonderful. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think uh, the the other story is very involved, but I'll just I'll shorten it as much as I can. So some of the the early kind of pioneer families of Oswego, we have several collections that are from those families in our museum and our archives. And one of my one of my favorites that uh, I've seen is from the the Carmen family. There's some roads around here that are named after them. But we have all of these stories that are separately very interesting and kind of wild. And when I first got to the museum, I would hear about these stories separately. And it wasn't until later that I realized, oh, they're all from the same family, like the same generation. That family was just going through a lot of stuff. And uh, some of those stories, for example, are, so Etta Carmen was one of the daughters of the the Carmen family, who was a, a very was a very big prominent family in, in early Oswego, and she married Daniel Magone, who was from another kind of prominent family. They ended up having eight kids together, a lot of kids in the 1890s that era. Unfortunately, a lot of tragedy hit their family. They ended up losing several children one of which actually drowned in the canal. We have, when she was drowning, the art tutor for the family, he was teaching them how to paint. He jumped in and he um, unfortunately drowned as well. And we recently acquired one of his paintings that we're in the process of restoring. And so they went, the family was like going through a lot. And then unfortunately for Daniel McGon, the father of the family, 
he started losing a lot of money and a lot of family property. And he didn't take any of this tragedy well. He started getting into drinking and gambling and all of that not so good stuff, ended up losing more money. And so he came up with this, what he thought was a brilliant idea. He, in a bar one night, started chatting with this other guy who was also not so good. And as they were talking, they they kind of figured out the plan. And the plan was this. They were both mad at William Ladd, who is a prominent name in Portland history. He was doing a lot of stuff. He was a banker. He was a real estate guy. There's this very infamous neighborhood in Portland called Ladd's Edition. And it's infamous because everything's a grid except this. It's like this swirling, jumbled mess. And he designed that. And so William Ladd was kind of this this very big name. He had died a few years previously, but Daniel Magone and this other guy that he had connected with, they were super upset with William Ladd and they blamed him for losing money, losing property, all of this stuff, because a lot of the property had been sold to William Ladd. And so Daniel Magone said, what if we dug up William Ladd stole his body and ransomed it back to his family. The family has a lot of money. We'll get away scot-free. Easy, easy, easy. And so that's what they did. They they gathered a few other guys to help them. One of them stole a telephone so that they could monitor what was going on around town to make sure that they could get away with this. They went up to the cemetery. They dug him up. They put his body on a little boat, they sailed it down to Magone's Landing, which is an area near the lake that had once belonged to Daniel Magone. They buried him in a shallow grave there. Unfortunately, right as they were doing all of this, in the now empty grave, Daniel Magone had left a dagger that he had used to like pry up, you know, some of the stuff in the grave. And it was very recognizable. It was clearly Daniel Magone's dagger. They confirmed it was his dagger and they immediately arrested everybody involved and reinterred William Ladd. And then they buried him in cement so no one else could dig him up. And if you go to the cemetery today, he is still buried under a slab of cement. And so it's this absolutely buck wild plan that did not work at all that connects to one of the big families of Oswego. And it's it's one of my favorites to tell because, like I said, it connects to a lot of different things that we have in the museum, from the painting of the artist who died trying to save one of Daniel Magone's children, to also one of their kids later on had to go work in a factory after Daniel kind of abandoned his family. And the, the kid got his hand amputated in the wow. machine and ended up inventing prosthetic limbs later on. And so we actually have a pair of these prosthetic swimming arms that he created that are called the penguins. And so it also connects to that. It just connects to all of these different areas. But the, the wildest one is just the grave robbing. It's just, it's very wild. <laughs> and he spent time in jail because of it. He spent about a year in jail. Um, it was, they were sent to jail for, it was 
messing with a monument is I think what they, what they got instead of like grave robbing because they ruined part of the like headstone that was there or something. So yeah, he did go, he did go to jail for it. Uh, We have a, we have a photo of his, his mugshot as well from that time, but yeah, super wild, Uh, a wild plan. Uh, The other, the other day I had a group of third graders in the museum and sorry, second graders in the museum. And I was taking them around kind of the, the general timeline that we have of Lake Oswego. And I was like, we're not going to focus on the exhibit about deaf kids. We're going to focus on the general history. But they got curious. They went over and Daniel McGone's story is there about robbing the grave. And they wanted to know, like, what's this mugshot for? Like, what is this story? Did he was he in jail for murder? And I was like, no, no, you know, let's focus on this other stuff. But they really wanted to know. So I told them a little bit about the story. And at the very end of the day, I asked, you know, like, what did you learn? What did you take away from this? And one of the kids rose her raised her hand and she was like i learned daniel was a bad boy (laughs) (laughs) which is which was true that is true he he was and the the fabric of all of that history is just marvelous and it it (laughs) accentuates the problem one of the problems in the 19th century which is the machines there were no safety guidelines and people lost limbs in machines yeah yeah Yeah, I know it connects to, I mean, it connects to child labor, it connects to death, it connects to the to the economics of the time, because the reason that the family lost so much money and land was because of the panic of 1893, which was like a mini uh, depression. Yeah. Uh, and so you have like all of these tie-ins to, to more national news and national culture at the time. So yeah, it's great. I did an episode just on the 19th century for Halloween. Oh, how fun. Just on all of those issues, yeah, including Mm -hmm. the panics, yeah. What are some of the most memorable moments or experiences visitors have shared after visiting the museum? I think that in learning about local history and in learning about the history of, like, very personal people and families, that a lot of people tend to then share oh, here's something about my own family, or here's something about where I live in Lake Oswego, or here's something, you know, that connects me to what I'm seeing around me. And I think that that's always very memorable for both of us, just because they get excited to share, and they get excited to connect it back to what they're seeing in the museum, which is always fun. And then sometimes, I kind of as as a in a different way because the museum used to be a doctor's house and a doctor's office we'll also get some older members of the community or people coming back to the community that come to visit that are saying oh I remember coming here as a kid to visit the doctor and this room you know used to be where I got my checkup or you know he took us on a tour of the house and we went down to the scary vault. Do you still have the vault? And, you know, things like that. And so I think the most memorable experiences just tend to be people connecting back to their own experiences and drawing those lines between past and present. That's very cool that people still remember the doctor. That is very I know, cool. I was shocked. <laughs> it happened a few months ago and she was so excited. She was talking about breaking her leg and coming here and all this stuff. Wow. 
Well, Catherine, it's time to take a break for a few minutes. Okay. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. From the founding to the future. Attention history enthusiasts and adventure seekers. Get ready for a groundbreaking experience at the Oswego Heritage Council's Heritage House and Museum. Dive into the intricate threads of Lake Oswego, Oregon's history in a way you've never experienced before. More than just a museum, it's a dynamic journey through time. Explore cutting-edge immersive environments that breathe life into history. Engage with captivating exhibits, and be transported by dramatic displays that reveal the extraordinary tales of Lake Oswego. From the founding to the future, each detail unfolds as a captivating chapter in the remarkable storybook of their history. The Oswego Heritage Council's Heritage House and Museum where the legacy of Lake Oswego becomes your legacy. Call 5036356373 for details, admissions, and hours. Visit www.oswegoheritage.org for a sneak peek. Located at 398 10th Street, Lake Oswego, Oregon. Email them at director at oswegoheritage.org. Don't miss out. Come for a visit and discover a world of history waiting to be explored. Your journey begins now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard this historic tour flight. This is your flight attendant speaking. Please turn on all personal podcast playing electronic devices and fasten your seatbelts as we're expecting some turbulence over the middle of our country. From there, we might stop over in Iowa for a spellbinding weekend before making our final descent into Mobile, Alabama in the mid-19th century. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy your historic tour with the Preservation Oaks podcast. There's another way to get away and relax anytime you like. Just listen to another episode of the Preservation Oaks podcast. It's free, and it's an excellent way to enjoy the history and uniqueness of our country. The tour is on us. Enjoy. Nine out of ten curators agree. Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. If you're a historical or genealogical society listening to Preservation Oaks, and you'd like to be a guest on the program, please email preservationoaks at gmail.com. This is Moises Garza, creator of Las Vías del Norte, Mexican-American Genealogical Research Group, and you're listening to Preservation Oaks. This is James Burns, neurodiverse freelance curator, and I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on Microstern Radio. This is Amber Colbert, the administrator of Park County Museum in Henderson, Nevada. I had a lot of fun as a guest on Preservation Oaks. There you are, in your doctor's waiting room again. Nothing to do but flip through an old magazine from 2014. But, are you just waiting for your doctor, or is she really your partner in preserving history? 
unsung heroes volunteering at the local historical society, gearing up for fundraising extravaganzas. Ever spread the word about the Preservation Oaks podcast to your friends? Elevate your waiting game by listening to Preservation Oaks episodes, making every minute riveting. Tune in at preservationoaks.podbean.com, YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, or your favorite podcast platform. Unleash the power of history during your wait. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Catherine Siner from the Oswego Heritage Council, located in Lake Oswego, Oregon. What an incredible segment our last segment was, Catherine. We explored the captivating history of Lake Oswego, explored the Heritage Council's wonderful history, marveled at the unwavering community support for the Heritage Museum, and were fascinated by the personal narratives woven into the diaries of the twin sisters. The tales of the infamous grave robber Daniel McGowan and the amorous escapades of the extramarital salesman Charles B. Hill and his 306 love letters added another layer to the rich historical tapestry of Lake Oswego. And I gotta say, your storytelling has made this journey both completely compelling and downright hilarious. Every minute of our time together has been a joy. Thank you so much for sharing these amazing stories and information. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Catherine. Thanks. What kind of funding model supports the organization, and what are your funding goals for 2024? Yeah, so we are a nonprofit, so we're supported by a lot of grants, donations, membership, that sort of thing. We have some big fundraisers throughout the year as well that allow us to continue our mission. And then we also have a space that's available for rent and the fees from those rentals help support the museum as well. So we have a few different pools that we draw from. In terms of 2024, we're always looking for support for our archival projects. So that's always a big area as well as our education programs. Most of what we offer is free to the public. And so we're always looking for support for those areas. So in terms of specific funding initiatives, there's one that we're kind of finishing up on, which is actually the restoration of the painting that I mentioned during uh, the story of of Daniel McGone. Um, We're going to be finishing restoring that and displaying it in the new year. So that'll be kind of finishing up. But the, the big initiative that we're focusing on in the last half of 2023 and then throughout 2024 is this incredible project that we've been working on with the Lake Oswego Public Library. Uh, The end result of that project will be an online history hub. So the Lake Oswego Public Library's historical collection, which they have a very extensive history collection. And then our own historical collection will be all digitized and accessible on their website. And it's a very long process to get to that point, but that will be the end result. To get to that point, we've worked with them to archive and organize and catalog their entire collection. It took several months and 10 volunteers working a little bit every single day to get that process done. We are currently working on indexing now. 
which is basically a way so that anybody anywhere can very easily at a glance know what's in a collection and where it's at and a little bit more information. So we're doing that for the public library's collection, and then we're going to be doing it for our own collection. Our collection is big, it's amazing, it's well-organized, it's well-cataloged, it's very hard for a researcher to come in and say, I want to know this thing, and for us to be able to easily pull it out. So indexing will allow that to happen. It'll be a really important research tool for anybody that wants to use these collections. So we're doing that for ours and for the public libraries. And then the next step is digitizing. So all of that costs a lot of money. And while we've done the the bulk of the you know, archiving, which is buying a lot of boxes and archival materials, that's done. The next step is everything else. And so that's kind of our big push for 2024. Okay. Yeah, that's a big effort. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And it's going to be really amazing once it's done. <laughs> now, what kind of, did you mention what kind of database or tool you're using to do the indexing? So we are working with one of the librarians at the, at the library, and she's developing the, the kind of indexing tool that we're using. Oh, okay, cool. So it's sort of a custom homegrown thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Wow. Now, you also, in terms of fundraising, you get donations. You also, I was reading, rent out a part of the Heritage House for events. Yeah, so we have a meeting space. It tends to be good for smaller events, I'd say under 75 people. But it's a very beautiful facility, if I you know, don't say so myself. And it includes you know, tables, chairs a full kitchen, dishware, all of that good stuff. And so we do a lot of rental events, whether that's like a business meeting or board meeting. We also do a lot of like little parties, get togethers, baby showers, you know, smaller weddings or rehearsal dinners or, you know, things like that. So we're doing a lot of events and we're always looking to, to schedule more and we're very affordable. We have Discounts available for nonprofits. And yeah, we have a, a lot of options there. And the only thing is that you do have to be a member to rent the facility, but you can become a member for $35 a year. Fantastic. Now you have membership levels? Yes. Yeah, we do. Okay. So we have different tiers. There are different benefits for each tier, but all members get access to online exhibits, our newsletter, the ability to rent the, the house, discounts on special events, and a quarterly journal of historical research and things from our collections. So we have different tiers, um, but lowest is actually technically the lowest is we have a free membership option that is available for students, teachers, and anyone receiving food benefits. And that gives you access to like our online exhibits and all of those benefits. And then we have other tiers as well, all the way up to a lifetime membership. Wow, very cool. Well, something for everyone. That's wonderful. Exactly. <laughs> Plus, you're really taking into account there are disadvantaged folks in the community and they need to be accounted for. 
Exactly. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that as we're putting more of our collection online and our exhibits online, that they're available to students and teachers as well. Very cool. Now, what kinds of exhibits are on display at the museum? So currently we have our, well, we have a permanent exhibit, which is our general history of Lake Oswego. It's kind of a timeline through the different eras of Lake Oswego. And then we have a rotating exhibit. As I mentioned, our current rotating exhibit is about death through the eyes of early Oswego families. And then we have a photo exhibit in the rest of the house and in the, the meeting space that currently is women of Lake Oswego. They're all historic photographs from our collection. In the new year, we'll be changing that out for a new photo exhibit that follows industry in Lake Oswego. So you'll be seeing lots of photos of the iron industry, logging, railroads, that sort of stuff. Okay, fantastic. Do you have any collections exhibited anywhere else, like the courthouse or the local airport or, you know, places like that? Yeah, we have before. Currently, we do not. We will later next year, but we've had exhibits in City Hall, in the public library. We'll have one in the Country Club next year because it's their big anniversary. And then we've we've put up in a few, like, retirement facilities in the area, some little exhibits. So we're always looking for new places to display and to work with the other organizations to put a little bit of history other places. Thank you for that. You mentioned the diaries of the two twin sisters, I believe. Mm -hmm. Can you discuss any other recent conservation efforts or restoration projects related to the museum's exhibits? Yeah, we don't do a ton of like conservation. We work really hard to, you know, preserve what we have, but we are in the process of working with an art conservator on the the painting, restoring that to its full glory. It's an 1893 painting. And since 1893, that painting has gone through a lot of stuff. It's gone through someone putting a glass on top of it and kind of puncturing it a lot of you know smoke and ash and all that stuff from cigarettes and you know being in a a place that um it's gathered a lot of things over time and so it'll be finished with the conservation effort in the new year and we will bring it back and display it here um and it i've seen a little glimpse of what it'll look like and it looks so bright and vivid and so, so new. So I'm really excited about that. Fantastic. Um, but we, um, we're working with, there's another organization in town, the Lake Oswego Preservation Society. They do a lot of great work in terms of like preserving buildings. And they have a, a small ironworkers cottage museum as well. We work together a lot on a lot of different historical projects, and we are currently working with them on transcribing and preserving these organ, iron, and steel company board meeting notes, oh. which might not sound super exciting, but is a very important look at the company that basically controlled Oswego and the surrounding areas during the iron industry 
and during the collapse of the iron industry. So it'll provide a lot of really important historical notes and all that. So, you know, we do, we do a lot of projects like that, but we don't do a ton of conservation works. Okay, thanks. You got any plans to expand the museum's facilities in the future? Because our museum is a historic house, it's difficult to expand our facilities, but we are looking to expand our collections. And we currently have a small storage facility offsite for some of our collections as well that we had to get this past year because we came into 60 bound copies of the local newspaper. And so we had to store them somewhere and we could not put them in our current collections. So we're trying to figure out some sort of solution as I'm sure a lot of museums are of the issue of storage, but um, we don't have any current plans to expand the facility. Yep. You can't just stop collecting because you're out of space. Exactly. (laughs) I understand. Everybody struggles with that. And it's got to be the right kind of storage because you Mm -hmm. can't just throw it in a basement somewhere. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) We want to make sure it's taken care of and accessible. And that's difficult. (laughs) Now, I ask this of everyone. If your building were to catch fire, what things would you grab on your way out? That's a great question. I think, first of all, I would grab Mark, who is our archivist. (laughs) I would toss him over my shoulder and make sure he gets out. (laughs) He has been here for, I think, eight years now. And he, before he came in, most of our collection was just kind of in boxes in the basement. And he's really helped transform us into a really well-organized functioning archives. And he has a lot of knowledge in his noggin that we are working on getting out of his head and in other places in our collection for research and, you know, exhibits and all of that good stuff. And so I would grab him. (laughs) And then outside of that, I think it's tough because we have a lot of things that on their own They are incomplete when they're just by themselves. And so it's more like I would want to grab as many things as I could. You know, (laughs) I would want to grab, I would want to grab all the love letters and some of the diaries that we have with these early Oswego people. And, you know, I would want to grab things like that, which by themselves tell a very incomplete story. So number one answer is I would grab Mark or Archivist. (laughs) That's a very interesting answer. I like that very much. That's great. Now, can you you mentioned earlier about the Chautauqua on the first Wednesdays, mm-hmm. is and that's a free lecture series. What's coming up on Chautauqua in the future? Yeah, we are currently scheduling for our next season, and I am very excited about some of the topics that are coming up, but we are finishing out this season. So in February, we have a presentation on the history of magic, which will be very fun. We also, we have lectures by Dr. Stephen Beckham, who was a professor at Lewis and Clark University nearby, and he does a lot of history of the area for thousands of years. And so he always has a really unique perspective 
and he tends to speak at least once a year in the series. So we have some really, really well-respected individuals with very unique perspectives on different historical themes. So yeah, we have a we have a lot of very fun things coming up in, in Chautauqua. Very cool. Now, do you have those on Zoom? So people who are members in other areas who can't attend in person can attend? So we currently offer them in person, but we're starting the process of actually recording them and then making them available afterwards to members. Yeah, that's very cool. All right, very cool, because you got some great speakers and some great topics. Yes, absolutely. Now, what kind of outreach and education does the council undertake within the community? For me, the point of a museum is to educate and do outreach and, you know, use all of this history to engage people in it. And it's been a lot of building new programs. So unfortunately, the Oswego Heritage Council had to, like a lot of places, cut back so much during COVID. And so a lot of the educational programs that we were doing stopped during that time. And so the past year and next year and probably the year after that will be about rebuilding a lot of those educational opportunities. So currently we offer classroom visits. So that can be either a school coming here or us going to visit a classroom. And we do a a then and now program. So students can compare the past to the present. And then we end by imagining the future of Lake Oswego as well and kind of the, the surrounding areas. And so that's one of our main things. I bet they have a lot of fun with that. They do, yes. Yeah, they get a, they get a handle of some of the artifacts. They get to uh, learn a little bit about their local history and see photos of the past compared to now. And then they use those photos to inspire them to imagine what the future, what Lake Oswego in 100 years might look like. Oh, that'd be so interesting. I can't imagine. Hmm. <laughs> they they tend to put a lot of aliens and flying cars. Those are the two <laughs> big things I've noticed. <laughs> That's where my mind was going, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we do a lot of outreach presentations. So our archivist or another volunteer will develop a talk based on research that we've done and then take it to different organizations or schools. We've developed some resources for teachers, too. So a lot of teachers that work in Lake Oswego don't necessarily live here or have lived here for a short while. And so we have some tools to just get them acquainted to the local history and how they can incorporate it in their classroom. So we're trying a few different approaches to education and outreach, and we'll continue to develop those. But like I said, it's going to be a long process just because, you know, like a lot of places, we're kind of starting from from scratch after COVID. Yeah, that's Thank some you. good work. What kind of annual or holiday events does the council sponsor? Yeah, we have a few big annual events. So we do a an annual car and boat show, which is a our major fundraiser as well. So it takes place in August at the end of the month. And we have hundreds of classic cars and then collector boats as well. The the boats are historic wooden boats and people show up from all over the place. We get about five to six thousand people every year. 
and it's a massive undertaking, but a very well-loved community event. And then we have like an annual summer event as well. It's historically been a big barbecue, basically, where we'll have like a little auction and some, some little activities and stuff like that. And then we have a holiday marketplace where we invite in local vendors and they set up around the house and people come through. Santa's normally there. You can take photos with him and our Christmas tree and all that good stuff. So we have a few kind of bigger open to the public events throughout the year that occur annually. (laughs) That is very cool. Wow. Nice. Something always going on. Yes, that's for sure. (laughs) Now, do you guys publish a newsletter? Yeah, we have our monthly memo uh, every month. And you can sign up. Anyone can sign up on the front page of our website. Actually, you just, there's a little subscribe to our blog today section. And you put in your name and your email and you're all signed up. Fantastic. You mentioned all of the artifacts that you have and how you're reclassifying them and recategorizing them and working hard on on making sure that you're indexing them. What kinds of records or historical artifacts has the museum received as donations from the public? Uh, Lots of things. We have about 38 family collections, and those are collections of things that tend to follow like a family from Oswego's history. So that can include diaries, clothing, documents, a little bit of everything. Uh, And then we have some general museum collections. We have about 35 of those. And those are things like we have like a fire department collection, which was a lot of historic photographs and materials from the local fire department. We have school records. We have city hall ledgers and stuff like that. We have a lot of different kinds of things. The bulk of what we have, I would say, is documents of some kind, whether that's paperwork or books or, you know, whatever. But we do have, you know, we have textiles. We have some 3D artifacts, kind of archaeology from, from town in terms of, like, ironwork stuff or, you know, materials from kind of the downtown section when it was changing. So we have some 3D materials as well, but I would say the bulk is paperwork adjacent things. I bet you have a million artifacts. Yeah, (laughs) probably. I wouldn't be surprised. Amazing. Now, all of this has to run with volunteers, I suspect, right? Oh, yes. (laughs) You got to love your volunteers. Yes. So what kinds of volunteer opportunities does the council, the house, the museum have for members and the public? Yeah, I mean, we could not function without volunteers. I am the only paid staff person at the Oswego Heritage Council. So we are predominantly volunteer run. And we have a lot of fun opportunities for our volunteers. A lot of our volunteers will work or help out in the archives. And that could be either doing historical research or helping with even just like transcribing some things or organizing some things or just like little work like that. Bagging and tagging new photographs that we've gotten in the past year. We've gotten probably about more than 5,000 new photographs. And all of those need to 
have a number assigned to them, need to be properly stored and taken care of. So we do that with volunteers. Are you digitizing those? Eventually, yes. Yeah. And yeah, and digitizing is a process as well that needs a lot of support. And then we also, though, do special events where we need volunteers to help us out with that. We'll have like a cleanup day in the garden that we need volunteer support on. And so, yeah, there's a there's a few kind of big areas that we ask for volunteer support on. And even with like volunteers, we're a relatively small crew. And so we really try to work with individual volunteers to figure out what they're interested in, what they might enjoy, so that they're really getting something out of the experience too. Yeah, amazing. I hope you've got a lot of volunteers, especially with the three, the barbecue, the boat show, you know, the, yeah. the marketplace. <laughs> that takes a lot of volunteers. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. Going through the car and boat show this last year was my first year doing it. And we had so many volunteers helping us. I could not imagine if we did not have to. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, I was quite impressed with the list of community partners that you have on your website. You just have a lot of community partners. How do you partner with, you know, county, state, regional organizations? I'd like you to talk about that for a minute so listeners understand. You're good at that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we work a lot with other organizations because we couldn't do what we do without them. And so each partnership is different because each partner is different. But we do, for example, with the Lake Oswego Public Library and the Lake Oswego Preservation Society, we do a lot of archival work together, a lot of history work together. We work with the library a lot to give presentations together so that their audience can can tap into historical lectures as well because a lot of them maybe haven't ever been to the museum or don't know about the museum. And since a lot of what we do is free and a lot of what they do is free, it's a really great partnership. But we're also, you know, trying to figure out new ways to partner with people. We're working with Museums for All, which is a new partnership to, you know, get out information that we are offering this free membership to people enrolled in food assistance. You know, we're working with the Clackamas County Heritage Council to you know, connect to more smaller museums like ours and the Oregon Museums Association to do similar work. And then the the Oregon's Mount Hood Territory is a very different kind of partnership because they're like our tourist group in the area. And so their focus is on tourism in the this area of like the, the Mount Hood Territory. And working with them is working a lot on how can we be a better organization that people want to come visit? How can we spread that to other, you know, businesses in the community so that everybody is benefiting from that? Same with like the Chamber of Commerce and things like that. So we work with a lot of different organizations and all of them are a little bit different. And of course, we work with the, the city as well. But it's been great because the more we connect to these other organizations and learn from them, the better that we can be as an organization and the better that we can serve their audiences and the people that they work with too. Oh, fantastic. You do just a great job at this. Now you mentioned this book that your organization published regarding the love letters. 
Have you published any other books? Yeah, so we have a few, and these are all kind of similar format in that they have the full transcribed, you know, letters or diaries, and then they have the research that our team has done as well. So we have the 1898 diary from the twins, Clara and Cora. Uh, We have the Baker Cook diaries, which were from 1898 to 1936. Those diaries are amazing. They were actually the basis for a huge chunk of our exhibit about Beth, because this family went through like everything you could possibly go through in the early 1900s in a really just well-written way. We've also done research into the war years in Lake Oswego of 1942 1945 through the Teresa Trousseau diaries. She was a big advocate for history as well. So hers are really interesting because she kind of has that historian lens on a lot of times. And then the love letters. So we have a few different manuscripts that are available to the public and we're looking for ways to make them more available to the public so that they're easier to access than, you know, calling me and asking me for a copy, although you are welcome to do that too. Yeah, that's fantastic. Catherine, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's time for us to take a break for a few minutes. Of course. All right, listeners, we'll be right back. the past at the Oswego Heritage Council's Heritage House and Museum. Brace yourselves for a revolutionary journey through time. Welcome to the Oswego Heritage Council's Heritage House and Museum, where history meets innovation. Picture this, state-of-the-art immersive environments transport you to the heart of Lake Oswego, Oregon's captivating past. Engage with interesting exhibits that bring history to life and be captivated by dramatic stories that weave tales of legendary pioneers. Explore a world where the ebb and flow of the shaping of the area are as enthralling as the epic struggles of national and world history. The Oswego Heritage Council's Heritage House and Museum isn't just a destination, it's an adventure waiting to be experienced time and time again. Your legacy intertwines with theirs as you step into a realm of discovery and wonder. Dial 5036356373 for the inside scoop, details, admissions, and hours. Prefer to surf the digital waves? Visit www.oswegoheritage.org and become a member to get all the benefits of the magic. Drop by 398 10th Street, Lake Oswego, Oregon, or send them an email at director at oswegoheritage.org to plan your visit. Trust us, you'll be thanking yourself for this. Embrace the past, celebrate the present, and create the future. Only at the Oswego Heritage Council's Heritage House and Museum. Join, volunteer, and donate today. This is Kirk Dillon, a friend of Sean Radcliffe's. 
Preservation Oaks brings you unbeatable information about museums, cultural, heritage, historical, and genealogical societies across the United States. It is a most enjoyable program that enables the public to look under the covers, as it were, and to feel completely comfortable with their decision to donate, join, volunteer with and support their organization of choice. I strongly encourage you all to give three cheers to the unsung heroes that are our nation's preservation oaks, for the hard work they do at your local society. It's very important work that really must be done properly, with everyone in the community helping as much as possible. Please follow, like, and listen to each episode of Preservation Oaks, but much more importantly, do please join, donate, and volunteer at one or more of your local societies. Thank you very much. Listen to Preservation Oaks to get the information you need to lock in your decision to volunteer and support your local museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies. On each episode of Preservation Oaks, our guests share the best information about these core organizations. You'll learn about the great work they do, what their needs are, their goals, and why you can feel good volunteering and supporting them. Join us wherever you get your podcasts, and then follow, comment, like, and listen. There are many things in the history of this country that you have never seen nor heard. Introducing Preservation Oaks, with new unique episodes featuring professional guests from across the country, telling unique true tales of the past that only they know. This podcast will bring you incredible knowledge and an appreciation of every area of our country. You'll hear history, with a clarity and vividness that until now were only in your fantasies. The Preservation Oaks Podcast. It will alter your view of the world. Listen at preservationoaks.podbean.com. This is Emily Thaves, Executive Director of the Beltrami County, Minnesota Historical Society, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Cheyenne Janstadter, Archives Manager and Outreach Associate at the Museum of Danish America, and you're listening to Preservation Oaks. This is Bill McGrew, President of the Board of Directors at Indian Creek Historical Society, located in Hastings, Iowa, and you're listening to Preservation Oaks. I was created by a blacksmith named John, who made me out of steel and wood. I was so slick. John took me around to all the farms and sold me to Bill Warner. Bill used me every season and I did my job with Cosmo and Rusty Pulling. Before I came along, days in the field were difficult for farmers, because they had to regularly interrupt their work to clean the sticky prairie soil off the share. I worked every season. After 30 seasons, and several changes of animals pulling me, my blades were greased, I was put into the shed and not used again. I was replaced by newer models with more bottoms and pulled using an engine. I lay there for years, collecting dust. The wood on me rotting. Finally, Bill's son pulled me out of there and donated me to the local historical society. They cataloged me, shined me up, oiled me, and made sure all my wooden parts were like new. Now, I'm on display for everyone, and they marvel at my simple design. There's a sign next to me telling people that my name is Grasshopper made by John. I feel so proud that I can help others understand the past, which I guess I'm now a part of. Rather than throwing it out, please donate historical records and objects to your local historical society, today. 
And now, back to Preservation Oak. Okay, welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We're here today with <laughs> cool. Catherine Siner from the Oswego Heritage Council, located in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Catherine, we've learned so much. This is great. Thank you for the information you provided to the audience about the council. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very fun. It has. Now, what kinds of things are available to do on the council's website? Yeah, I think that we have, you know, some general information about our exhibits, our archives, some resources as well. If you're interested in historical research or interested in some of the stuff that we do have available online currently, we have about 550 photographs digitized and available on the library's website, but we link to that on our own, as well as a lot of documents. So there's, there's some good information there. And if you are a member, there is several online exhibits, and there will be more online exhibits, and also some past journals that we've released quarterly that have a lot of really great historical research in them. So there's plenty to keep you occupied. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. And can I donate on the website? Please do. There's a big donate button right at the top and you just click on that and the rest is easy as can be. Yeah, it's a great website. Are you constantly maintaining the website? Yeah, our website is actually new in the past year. It was completed about eight months ago, I would say. So that was one of my first big projects when I came into this role is just creating a basically new website that has tons of information and is very easy to navigate. And we're always looking to improve it and to maintain it as well. So yes, yeah, it is It is pretty consistently maintained. Well, you did a good job. Thank you. Hey, a lot of help. What's the easiest method for members of the public to donate? I think through our website is probably the easiest, but if they're having trouble with the website, whether that's navigating or using the online system, they can always give us a call or email and we're happy to help them out. Okay, fantastic. Can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the organization that you want the people of your area to know about and support? I think the, the big initiative is the library project that we're working on with them, not just in terms of like, monetary support, but also in terms of volunteer support. So that's kind of our biggest area where if, you know, someone wants to give whatever that giving looks like, we will gladly accept it and we'll gladly work with them so that we can get it done and get it accessible. Fantastic. I can't remember if it was on your website or on Facebook. No, it was in your monthly memo, one of your newsletters. 
that uh, you had five ways to support the Heritage Council. And yes. following us on social media was number one. Visiting yes. the museum with your friends and family was number two. Signing mm -hmm. up to volunteer was number three. Donating directly to archival projects was number four. And join us as a member and renewing your membership. That was num yes. actually number one. Yeah, yeah. All of those are very, very important. Um, they support us in different ways. And, you know, a lot of times people think support means donating monetarily, but it doesn't have to. It can be as simple as following us on Instagram and commenting, hey, cool historic photo or something, you know? Support can look like a lot of things, and we're just really grateful for any support offered. Yep, fantastic. And I'm glad you had that because people need to be reminded of those ways, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, here's a reflective question. What are your thoughts about how best to keep history and community support accessible and flourishing for the current generation, the K through 12 kids? Yeah, I think that the thing about history is that it is weird and fun and fascinating and can connect to everybody. And that if we aren't afraid to be a little creative with it, that we can have no problem engaging K through 12 in it. I, I, so I think one of the, the big things is that also we can't be satisfied that we've reached the answer because the answer to that question is always going to be changing and evolving and how people are interested and how people access history is always going to be changing as well. And so I think that we always have to go into it with an open mind and go into it actually asking, you know, K through 12 students, what are you interested in? What do you care about? How can we get you involved? And because otherwise we can just throw things at the wall and nothing will stick. I don't know. I went in to a high school last month and talked to their, they have like a history club and we just, I talked a little bit about what we do, but I also kind of wanted to hear like, how do you get your information? What are you interested in? What sort of stuffs are you responding to in the stories that I'm telling you? And just constantly having that back and forth, constantly having those conversations is the only way to keep things accessible, yeah. accessible and flourishing because otherwise we're operating in a vacuum and that doesn't help anybody. And so I, I really, really strongly believe that it's community engagement, it's education, it's all of these different ways. And then people will be interested in history and want to support that. And like I said, also having weird stories to tell is always a good step too. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say the state because I don't want to embarrass the state, but there is a state in this country, and I interviewed several organizations in the state, and when you mentioned that there was a history club in the high school that you were able to talk to, this state does not even teach history in the state, in their education system, to students because nobody can agree on what history to teach the students. Yeah, yeah. My... Dad works in a state like that as a history teacher, and we've had a lot of conversations about what 
history is becoming. And I think something important that I'm constantly reminded of is one, I'm very lucky that our organization is in Oregon. So we have a lot of freedom to talk about underrepresented histories, especially that's really encouraged. Yeah. And then two, that making history accessible also means providing people tools to access history in their own ways. It doesn't necessarily mean making your history, the history that you have, the history of your museum, the only history that's accessible. It means engaging on on a bigger scale and providing resources and tools so that people can learn more on their own in other places and in other ways. Because yeah, otherwise it it can get really complicated and, and difficult. But yeah, I know I went to a conference recently and there were people from all over the country and a lot of museums were, were having that issue of there's histories that we aren't allowed to talk about right now, but they're very important histories to tell. And how do you navigate telling those stories and also not losing your funding? And it's, yeah, it's, it's complicated and scary. Absolutely it is. You know, I would normally say history is just facts. It's the truth. Whatever it is, you tell it and, you know, be done with it, right? But you can't mm-hmm. do that if you're faced with losing your funding. Yeah, yeah. That's the trouble. So, uh, yeah, I think that that's also where, like, community partnerships really come into play is because if anything this has shown us, we cannot do history alone. We have to rely on other organizations as well so that we're all kind of taking this on. Absolutely. And all standing up for the truth, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Very important. Now, I want to give the contact information for the Heritage Council one more time. The Oswego Heritage House and Museum, the Heritage Council, can be reached at their website at oswegoheritage.org. You can look them up on Facebook under Oswego Heritage. You can phone them at 503-635-6373. You can go and visit them, and I hope you do, at 398 10th Street, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97034. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 1041, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97034. You can email them at director at oswegoheritage.org. And their hours of operation are Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. That all sound right? Sounds good to me. All right, fantastic. Catherine, why is the council important to the community and what makes your organization different or unique from others? Yeah, I think the the main thing is that we are an organization of local history and local history is so important to a community and to an area because it informs you of how your community got there, how it ended up this way. It can also inform you of why things are the way that they are. Why, for example, in in Lake Oswego, Lake Oswego is predominantly white, but it wasn't always like that. And learning about history then allows you to see how that happened and can allow you to then plan for the future and how can we make our 
community um, more diverse and interesting and equitable, honestly. And so history informs the present, which then informs the future. And local history especially has such a place to play in that. And that's what we do is local history, which is Lake Oswego, but it's also the county. It's also the state. And how we're different is nobody else has these stories that we have. No one else has the team that we have, the artifacts that we have, the place that we have. And there is another history organization in Lake Oswego, the Lake Oswego Preservation Society. They do phenomenal work. They have a great facility. They have, you know, a good vision as well. They focus on, you know, the buildings. We focus on the people. We're both telling history. We just do it in different ways. And so, yeah, we're, I think, of uh, a little gem here. <laughs> and I think also have a, a very important role in having these conversations about our town and how we can make it better. Excellent. Yeah. And that's why I love doing this podcast, because every organization that I talk to has unique stories, has unique histories, Mm -hmm. and has unique approaches, and quite frankly, unique personalities. And it's just a joy to talk to everyone that I talk to. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine. Every place is special in its own little way. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. Catherine, what's the best way for people to connect with someone in the organization if they have questions? Either email or phone. You gave both and either is good. Yeah, I mean, they'll they'll go to me, so you'll hear from me. (laughs) Okay, fantastic. If I can't answer the question, um, I, I will find the person that can. All right, thank you. Is there any other information or message you'd like the community or members to know about? I think the the main thing is that we're just, as we're, you know, rounding out 2023, going into 2024, that we're really hoping to, you know, grow and to connect to more people, whether they're organizations or individuals, and, you know, really do the process of of telling history, researching history, doing history uh, with other people. And so, yeah, we're always open to feedback, to, you know, little tidbits someone might have about Lake Oswego history or questions or any of that stuff. So we're trying to be a very, you know, open organization as much as we can. Fantastic. Reflecting just a bit, how do you think your members, volunteers, and the community view you and the Council, Heritage House, and Museum in terms of benefits and value? When I first got into this role, I sent out like a little survey to our members and community members to kind of hear this exact question of like, why are we important? Like, why what is the benefit of the Oswego Heritage Council? Like what, what is our value to you as, you know, a member or community member or whatever. And it just came up time and time again, not just a chance of preserving the history, but also preserving it for specifically future generations, making sure that future generations can have access to the history and learn about that history and feel connected to that history. So I think that that's, that's kind of the, the big view of us is like, that's our role is not just to preserve things, but to 
educate people about them and get people excited about them. Catherine, I just want to thank you for spending time with us today. I've learned a lot, had a great time. I'm really glad to meet you and to just listen to you and listen to your enthusiasm and your expertise and quite frankly, your, your skill and your, you know, your knowledge. It's truly been inspiring how much you and the Heritage Council does to help the community and your members. And I wish you a very happy new year and much success. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time that you've put into to this episode and making it a success as well and all of the thoughtful questions. So thank you so much. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Catherine Siner, the Executive Director of the Oswego Heritage Council. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. You know, Catherine Siner was so kind to take the time to educate and enlighten all of us about Lake Oswego, this wonderful spot in our country, to visit and to experience history with the Lake Oswego Heritage Council's Heritage House and Museum. I encourage you all to visit and to support the museum with your donations by joining and by volunteering. I thoroughly enjoyed spending time with Ms. Catherine. She's quite a professional, and it shows in her ability to lead and inspire, but also in her ability to tell the compelling stories of history. The area is lucky to have a person of her quality working on their behalf. The most pressing priorities of the Lake Oswego Heritage Council at this time are volunteers are needed to assist with several critical projects underway at this time and coming up in the future as well as the three to four annual events the council sponsors. There's work to restore and conserve the 1893 painting going on. They're looking to expand their collections and add more collections storage space. And there's work to do to enhance their outreach and education in the community, making sure that future generations have access to the history of the area and remain connected to it. Also, in the past year, the museum has received approximately 5,000 photos that have to be cataloged and digitized. So those are going to require volunteers to help. There's just a lot to do all the time. The council is starting the process of creating a three to five year strategic plan, participating with their partners in a lot of great programs, meeting people where they're at. Now's the time to take advantage of the opportunity to volunteer and be a part of it. A quote from Catherine. Coming into this museum, I've been here for a year now, and I've just been absolutely stunned by how supportive the community is and how much they care about preserving the history and heritage and sharing that and educating people about that. There's been so much support and so much excitement that I haven't seen in a lot of other communities. This community in particular wants to be involved in that process and wants to support us however they can. So that's been really exciting, unquote. 
Like so many of our institutions nationwide, the Oswego Heritage Council is rebuilding after the effects of the COVID pandemic on their operations. There's a lot to do to get all the cylinders firing again and also to chart and move into the future for the organization. They're going to need great volunteers with excellent skills and all the support they can get. Don't forget the great member benefits, including being able to rent the excellent meeting or party space for your favorite event. The museum has fantastic Chautauqua speakers on the first Wednesday of every month with some great topics. You can really learn a lot. Catherine mentioned that in the future, these sessions will be recorded and available for later viewing. Also, everyone in the museum, if the museum catches fire, and if Catherine isn't on site at the time, please be sure to grab Mark, the archivist. Throw him over your shoulder. Make sure he gets out of the building safely, okay? Now, there's five very basic ways to support the Oswego Heritage Council, and here they are. Number one, follow them on social media. Like and comment. Number two, visit the museum with your friends and family. Number three, Sign up to volunteer. Number four, donate directly to archival projects. And number five, join as a member and renew your membership. Those five things will go a long way to helping. The council really is a gem in the community and definitely has a role in bringing more interest, richness, and tourism to the area. They're supported 100% by donations and volunteers. Please help support the Oswego Heritage Council today. Catherine reviewed the funding and fundraising particulars of the council, so you know that everything you do for the council will be used for quality preservation and education. One last time, the contact information for the council. You can reach them at their website at www.oswegoheritage.org. Look for them on Facebook at Oswego Heritage. You can phone them at 503-635-6373. You can visit them, and I hope you do, at 398 10th Street, Lake Oswego, Oregon 97034. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 1041, Lake Oswego, Oregon 97034. You can email them at director at oswegoheritage.org. And their hours of operation are Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Now, if questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the Heritage Council via the contact information provided. If you're a listener in the area the Council serves and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting them. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the Oswego Heritage Council is to the community and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to their members and to the public. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Cymbal Bird, Lucky Black Cat, Orange Production, Ilian's Productions, Alex Bird, Odin Mann, Track Tribe, and Scott Holmes. The Oswego Heritage Council, located in Lake Oswego, Oregon, is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. MicroStream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. 
This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by MicroStream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Radcliffe. We'll see you all next time on Preservation Oaks. And until then, keep on giving and keep on living the good life.